<laughs> Honestly, like one of my biggest worries at the moment is when my parents will meet their first grandchild. Who knows? We just have no idea what the world's going to be like in six months' time. It's pretty surreal anyway, this sort of period leading up to the birth. It's sort of um, not quite knowing what to expect. But to do that in the middle of a global pandemic with the lockdown and everything, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really bizarre. Ça va bien aller. Same boat. Let's think about the major life events that everyone experiences, or at least is closely connected to through family and friends. You've got weddings, the births of children and grandchildren, graduations, personal and professional achievements, and of course, on the other side of the spectrum, deaths of those close to us. We're accustomed to sharing these moments with every important person in our lives, as many as we can feasibly round up in some cases, and experiencing all of it right alongside them, in celebration or in mourning. And, typically, it's hard to imagine going through these events any other way without these people by our side. But things being as they are now, at least for a while longer, I've actually been impressed with how people are handling their big life events, the ones occurring during these times, in stride and how creative they're getting and sharing it with others in a virtual manner. I suppose if you had one of these major events scheduled for right now, you'd find a way to get through it the best way possible and save a proper celebration with others for a later time. You know, a rain check on that graduation party or wedding reception. We'd all be able to put up with doing this once, right? Yeah, but what if it was twice? On this episode, I'll be joined by a couple who as luck would have it, were married and are expecting their first child all during lockdown. And I think what their story will highlight is something we've all been learning in the past several weeks, that life will go on regardless of anything else. And all we can do is stay aboard, ride things out, and do what we got to do. I'm Tim Pogo. Welcome to Same Boat. Same boat. I'm having a little glass of red wine, a Sangiovese from, um, I think, Emilia Romagna. Um, yeah, nice, a nice little Italian tipple. Mm. I am having a glass of elderflower cordial. <laughs> really exciting, but uh, it's pretty much as exciting as it gets when you're nine months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to make this feel like as if we were hanging out in a casual setting, in a social setting, in a pub or something like that. So hence, we all uh, have a little something. I, even though it's midday here, I thought I'm speaking with two people in Scotland. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least pour a tiny bit of a dram. So uh, I have a single malt scotch in my hand. Oh, a breakfast whiskey. That's absolutely, yeah, definitely Midday is not too early at all. (laughs) Right? (laughs) If anything, you're just catching up. (laughs) Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to you. I'm speaking with Amy and Alan, a couple who reside in Scotland's capital city, Edinburgh. They live in an area just near the city center, quite close to Holyrood Palace, which officially is the Queen's residence when in Scotland. She spends about a week there every summer. They're also at the edge of an area called Leith, which is on the north end of town and is home to the city's enormous ports. It boasts a bustling waterfront along the Firth of Forth River, which flows from Scotland's interior, then past Edinburgh before emptying into the North Sea, some 25 miles to the east of the city. 
Amy is an event coordinator, and part of her work involves organizing massive public events for the National Museum of Scotland. Alan works as a clerk at both the High Court of Justiciary and the Court of Session, the highest courts in Scotland. And if you need a brush up, yes, Scotland is part of the UK, but has a number of its own powers and a degree of self-governance. The court system, which Alan works in, is just one of those entities separate from England and the rest of the UK. So here's a short breakdown. It's all relatively new because until 1999, I mean, I say you know relatively new, 20 years now, but... Um, <laughs> That's really old. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, any, anything since 2000 seems like yesterday to me, but... Uh, it didn't exist, or it hadn't existed, I should say, since 1707. So uh, when the Union of Parliaments, the Scottish Parliament and the English Parliament uh, united into the, the, the British Parliament, it stayed that way until 20 years ago, when what they call a devolved parliament uh, for, for Scottish affairs, healthcare, uh, agriculture, uh, education, and also the, the legal system. Living in Scotland, it's almost like having a wallet full of membership cards, right? It's like, yep, we're Scotland. Yep, we're Great Britain. Oh, we're UK too. And until recently, you also had an EU card. Although I wonder if you'll be trading in your UK card to get that one back before long. But does it ever get confusing for basic things like laws or taxes or which department to call when you've got a problem? Is it similar to a provincial thing in Canada or a state thing in the US? There's a Scottish level for some matters and a UK level for others? Well, I think that just as a, a day-to-day kind of person, just navigating your way through it, it's not that confusing. I mean, I speak as a South African who immigrated here. So <laughs> it's, it's not like, as you said, you know, you're asking if, if it's confusing which number to phone. Like, I think occasionally. In the US, you know, some things will be federal matters and things will, some things will be state matters. And I suppose it's sort of equivalent to that. The one major institution upon which the whole of the UK relies, of course, is the NHS, National Health Service, the publicly funded healthcare system for every resident in the UK, in Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. It's broken up into a separate system for each of those countries, and not surprisingly, during this global pandemic, for the British, the NHS has been right there at the top of mind. You know, obviously, everyone's in lockdown, and that would be the same in much of the world at the moment. The NHS is a big thing here, and it's, um, it, it's I mean, it's been called, <laughs> in the post-religious sort of era, it's been called the, the only religion Britain has. Everyone's very devoted to it, especially in times like this, you know, when we're all relying very much on, on health care and so on. And it's, it's a big thing, I, I suppose, in North America or in the United States, you know, uh, it's quite different. There's a big issue of, you know, whether healthcare is free at the point of delivery and so on and so forth. Yeah, you see, you know, like adverts on TV, our lockdown is very much all about protecting the NHS and obviously, you know, protecting each other and making sure everyone stays healthy and as safe as possible in lockdown. But it's, we're all so emotionally invested <laughs> in, in our healthcare system. I think that's a massive thing. I can understand, as Amy described, the emotional investment in an entity like the NHS. Maybe it's the sort of thing where you don't ever want to lose something, so you cherish it. Being American, I can only imagine a world where I would just know that if anything happened to me, my health, my well-being, or if I had an accident, that I would be sorted out without any fear of being broke for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'd be emotionally invested, too. It's sort of weird because, in a sense, isn't it the other way around? Isn't the NHS there to protect us rather than? But, but you know, I mean, I guess. Yeah, but it, it goes both ways, you know, doesn't it? Yeah, and everyone was gonna was afraid that it would be overwhelmed, as you know, 
the healthcare systems, like for example in northern Italy, uh, and I think Spain have were under a lot of pressure. I mean, I think everyone is obviously still really worried about it. It's hard not to be, and you hear all the stories, of course, of the the kind of the lack of PPE for medical workers, which is yeah really concerning. But on the kind of positive side, there's also lots of good stories about how well hospitals are coping, how many spare beds they still are. I think, you know, you're never not going to be worried about it. But um, but I think there's also a, a kind of a sense of confidence that the healthcare system is still working. That's the, the absolute beauty of the NHS is that it, it's for everybody and it's not income based at all, um, which is why it's so precious. I just can't imagine not having accessible healthcare whenever you need it. It's it's amazing, but it's also just such a kind of given here, you know. Of course you can go and see a doctor. Of course you can go to hospital. How? Why would you not be able to do that? Sounds like a human right to me. <laughs> Absolutely. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Well, we could, we could do an entire series of episodes <laughs> yeah. on that discussion here in America. But No, uh, oh, yeah. No. Well, for sure. <laughs> so that's the backdrop of life as it is right now in Scotland against which Amy and Alan are experiencing two of the most momentous events of their lives, one of which is a baby who, at the time of this recording, is expected at any moment. But first things first. So the two of you were married in March, correct? That's right, 21st of March. (laughs) Two days before the lockdown, so uh, (laughs) it was a close-run thing. Yeah, it really was. We weren't really sure if we were going to be able to go ahead or not, but we managed to just get in there. (laughs) So it was... It wasn't a full-on lockdown yet, but at least there was like the social distancing measures were in place, correct? Or Yeah, that's right. So at the beginning of the week, they introduced the social distancing measures. So there can't be many people present. How do you decide who makes the cut then? Like, oh, <laughs> sorry, Uncle Bob, your Christmas gift last year was kind of lame. So you're out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, And we were pretty lucky because we had already planned for a really, really small wedding. Um so I guess, I, yeah, we didn't have a lot to kind of rearrange. And I think we were only planning on having about 12 guests as it was. And then we got an email saying they're limiting it to 10 people. You can't have anyone over 70. Um, I think they also said, yeah, also not with, you know, any severe kind of underlying health uh, conditions. And and yeah, basically you all have to kind of <laughs> be socially distanced. Like a nurse standing at the door, taking the temperature of everyone coming in, like, uh, nope, too high, gotta go. Not, not quite, not quite. <laughs> yeah, so it was, ended up just being the two of us, obviously, and my brother and his girlfriend and uh, another couple who are uh, really good friends of ours. So it was just the, the six of us at <laughs> the end. It was a bit of surreal. So you even had a few spots to spare, huh? <laughs> oh, oh, sure, yeah. All the people on uh, on you know my side couldn't make it in the end. So uh, I had a friend who was meant to be traveling, but she had a, a young baby. Um, so of course, you know, they decided not to come. And then my uncle was going to come, but he is over 70. So we told him he can't come. <laughs> um, and then my other two best friends, I was really worried about because they were due to have a baby um, a couple of weeks after the wedding. And I kind of went back and forth with them on the phone about with all of this stuff happening, I'm just not sure that it's a good idea for you guys to be there. And they were absolutely adamant. We want to be there for you. Um, and they were my witnesses as well. <laughs> so, But then just as fate um, you know, took control, they had their baby uh, the day before our wedding. So, so, so obviously, yeah, they couldn't make it in the end either. No excuse in my book, but... Uh. Yeah, well, exactly. 
It's kind of funny because we planned this whole wedding in the most unromantic way possible, I guess. <laughs> like, um, Speak for yourself. Like, <laughs> oh, well, excuse me. I, th I believe your proposal was over dinner and it was like, do you think we should just get married then? <laughs> um, and then we kind of didn't really discuss it at all. And I was, we were going to go and visit my parents in South Africa for Christmas. And I suddenly thought, well, you know what? You know, if we're going to do this, we want to do it before our baby arrives in May, just because it's just so much easier to kind of get it kind of legal stuff all done and out the way. And then I looked at my diary and realized I didn't have a free weekend <laughs> pretty much from when we got back from holiday to when I went on maternity leave other than this one weekend. So I texted Alan at work and I was like, do you want to get married on the 21st of March? Because that's the only day I can do. <laughs> I can fit you in on this weekend. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, if I move my Pilates class to Sunday, I can do it on Saturday. Yeah, pretty much. I was working. It was more important things. <laughs> I mean, they might be sounding a little nonchalant about it, but really, the wedding was intended to be small in the first place, not because they couldn't be bothered, but simply the logistics involved with most of their family members. Well, certainly my parents, obviously, um, who are in South Africa, and my brother, who's in Colorado, couldn't were never going to be able to make it. They were going to come out later in the summer. And Alan's dad lives in Greece, and uh, and his mum, sadly, is... Yes, basically, housebound, yeah. Yeah, she's not able to leave the flat. So so I think we were never going to have any family at the wedding anyway, which I had been really, actually, fine about at first, because we thought, oh, it's just going to be... You know, this is just getting the kind of the paperwork out the way and then we'll celebrate with people another time. But the closer we got to the date, the more sad I felt about it. <laughs> um, so I was kind of really regretting in some ways that we could have done that. But then when this whole coronavirus thing happened, actually it worked out in some ways for the best because they wouldn't have been able to come anyway. And then it would have been even more of a disappointment if, you know, they'd had to cancel travel plans or whatever. So on the upside, not having a massive wedding in the works, no exorbitant deposit already paid to a venue, no caterers to cancel, no wedding band to call up and say, sorry, you no longer got the gig. Turned out to be a blessing and make it easier to shuffle everything around. But still, it is their wedding. And it's still not what you envision for yourself when you think of how that day will unfold for you. So far, I like the way they're letting everything shake out however it must and not letting the circumstances get in the way of their enjoyment of the moment. But don't forget, getting married was only half of it. The next major life event is coming, ready or not. Same boat. Theoretically, any time. I mean, I could literally go into labor on this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Whoa, right? <laughs> that, that would be a first. But let's hope not. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> At the time of release of this episode, the baby is due any day now. But in your wildest dreams, I mean, I can't imagine you, you ever thought that you would bring your first child into the world in such a situation. No, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's sort of, it's pretty surreal anyway, this sort of period leading up to the birth. It's sort of um, not quite knowing what to expect. You know it's going to happen, but you don't really. You're not really going to know what's happening until it's there screaming in your, in your arms sort of thing, you know. But to do that in the middle of a global pandemic with the lockdown and everything, yeah, it's, it's, it's really really bizarre because I mean, day to day at the moment, everything's very quiet, you know, it's, it's sort of, we're just sort of living this limbo sort of existence. And yet we know that it's going to be um, full on, but you know, yeah, great. It definitely adds another layer of terror to the whole situation. But I think we were kind of talking about this the other night and saying in some ways, oh, you know, what terrible timing, you know, but 
well, A, obviously we could never have known that this was going to happen when we decided to have a baby. But also, you know, it's just, yeah, you just, you can't kind of say it, all those what ifs, you know, if we decided to wait, maybe, you know, it wouldn't have happened or something else would have come up, you know, it's just a, I think you've just got to roll with it, don't you? I mean, people give birth in all sorts of terrible situations around the world and um, life finds a way, as they as they say in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is our Bible, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what we're reading as a baby manual guide. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, look, you know, people have said to me that the first six months of having a baby is like being in lockdown anyway. So, you know, might not make that much of a difference. Never mind the inconvenience of a world locked down and the round-the-clock efforts of trying to take care of a newborn, the actual undertaking of ensuring they don't become infected themselves is something they've had to be positively obsessive about. That's the thing. I mean, I guess the biggest worry for us is, is of, yeah, of course, getting it ourselves, the baby getting it. You know, we're just trying to be really careful and keep healthy and things. But also, if, um, for example, if Alan gets any symptoms before I go into labor, then he can't come with me to the hospital. So that's, you know, it's a bit nerve wracking, but uh, I've kind of been mentally preparing myself for, yeah, doing it on my own if I if I have to. <laughs> it kind of puts things into perspective, I guess. You know, you spend so much of your pregnancy kind of worrying about, oh my God, like, is this cheese I'm eating going to give me listeria or like whatever? And then suddenly it's like, you're worrying, will I catch like a deadly virus and pass it on to my baby? <laughs> like, it's like a whole nother level of concern. But in, in a way, it's like so massive that you just can't, you can only do what you can do and then just you have to leave it up to fate, I suppose. Yeah, I was just, yeah it's like subsumed into the, the general anxiety of, oh my God, we're about to become parents, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we did some kind of online antenatal classes uh, a couple of weeks ago and I'm now in a WhatsApp group with all the other mums um, who did the classes with us. And it's quite interesting that actually the whole kind of pandemic situation is something that we've hardly discussed at all. I mean, other than maybe a couple of questions about, yeah, like how long can partners stay at the hospital and blah, 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 like that kind of thing. But mostly it's about what snacks people are taking with them and, you know, like what are the towels like there? And like, <laughs> you know, just like really kind of, you know, what kind of pain relief people are thinking of or, you know, really just the normal stuff that you'd worry about with having a baby. It's, you know, all of that is still very much like in your mind. So kind of coronavirus like takes a back seat <laughs> so basically if you want to take your mind off this terrible pandemic you just just get pregnant and have a baby you know it's uh it's there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's great yeah a huge distraction <laughs> was it difficult with all the hoarders just getting all the various supplies that you need did you have to kind of think ahead and get all that uh, you know we we were very lucky because uh friends gave us an awful lot of stuff you know, months ago, you know, well before the, the lockdown and, and the, the pandemic and so on. And um, there, there was a little bit of a, of a, a wobble um, right at the beginning when you heard that everything was selling out, you know, like nappies, you know, diapers, I guess you call them in, in uh, America, you know, had, had sort of sold out in the, in the shops and so on. That first week of lockdown, I, I did do a massive online order of just getting everything that I could think of that we might need 
if the baby arrived, you know, not like stockpiling anything, but little bits and pieces of things that we didn't have. And even, you know, thinking like <laughs> we, had, we got one tin of formula and some bottles just in case you know, we got home from the hospital and we we're having problems breastfeeding uh, just to have a backup because at that point, yeah, you know, all of that kind of stuff was being sold out in supermarkets and things. So we just thought, oh my God, you know, we don't want to be in a situation where we can't feed our baby <laughs> or, or we can't, yeah, if there's no nappies or whatever. So... But yeah, I think we've, we've got the essentials, so we'll be all right. <laughs> Indeed, Amy and Alan are fully stocked with supplies and they're mentally prepared for what's sure to be a challenging number of months. They've got this. But yet, I wondered if there was anything that still truly worries them or keeps them up at night. I mean, yes, uh, uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it... it you know, it's a it's a worrying time. It, it's it's also it's an exciting time, and it's potentially full of joy. But it's also you know anxious times and so on, and not helped by the uh, current situation. But there's no point dwelling on what could go wrong. You've just got to, I guess, deal with it. And having said that, Amy, you are the one that's got to go through it. So um, <laughs> yeah, thanks thanks yeah. for the support there. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And then that just leaves you with all the other usual worries of just, is my baby going to be okay? <laughs> like, am I going to be okay? Um, our baby is a very lazy baby. So she uh, likes to, you know, just have long periods where she just doesn't really do much moving, which just makes me constantly anxious. Um, and usually, you know, they say to kind of phone the hospital and then they'll go in and do scans and everything. But um, And they still absolutely will do that. But um, but obviously, you don't want to be rushing into the hospital every five minutes in this uh, current <laughs> situation. So I spend my time just drinking lots of like cold drinks and lying there, like blasting music at my stomach and being like, please, like, just kick me. <laughs> um, but yeah, hopefully it means she'll sleep really well. I don't know. <laughs> Lazy likes music and cold drinks. That's going to be our daughter. You know, I mean, how could it be any, any other way? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it'll also be that not being able to have anyone around to help, right? I mean, that's usually part of the deal. You have a baby and there's no shortage of potential babysitters clamoring to get their turn, right? It's what grandparents live for. Yeah, definitely. And I think also just, yeah, not having a break, but also just not having our families, you know, meet our baby for who knows how long. I mean, especially, um, you know, our, our parents who live overseas. Um, as I said, you know, my mum my and dad were planning to come over in July and that's, well, pretty much definitely not happening now and yeah it's just I think that's honestly like one of my biggest worries at the moment is when my parents will meet their first grandchild uh we're hoping to go out for Christmas but even that you know I mean who knows we just have no idea what the world's going to be like in six months time that's quite a hard thing um because obviously like we were all so excited and they were so excited and I mean they are so excited but it's, uh, yeah, babies just grow so fast. I don't want them to only meet their granddaughter when she's a year old. <laughs> As my mum was saying, my grandmother uh, was French and um, married my grandfather, moved to South Africa and had kids there. And her parents didn't meet their grandchildren, you know, for years. Uh, and they didn't have anything as great as video chat or, um, you know, even letters just took months to arrive. So you just have to kind of focus on the things that we do have. And I think, yeah, video calls are definitely something that's giving us life at the moment. <laughs> what do you think the first year or two of your child's life will be like? 
<laughs> I think she'll be thoroughly sick of us by the time <laughs> we come out of this. She'll she'll only know us. <laughs> she, I actually, I mean, joking aside, I did think the other day. I wonder if she'll be like terrified of strangers because <laughs> um, uh, if this goes on for another few months, she, yeah, she's not going to have seen any anyone else <laughs> take her out into the world or just be like oh my god <laughs> yeah it's a good question i mean and and i mean i don't know about very young babies but pretty quickly it's you know it's obviously very good for children to be with other children and be able to you know learn to socialize and so on and so forth i mean okay you know i think we've got a few months to go before that's necessary but yeah i mean it's a good question how, how we don't know how long this is all going to go on for you know how long social distancing will be a thing how you know nurseries and schools and all that sort of stuff will they reopen and to what extent and it, it's probably less a thing for a, our child who's about to be born but you know maybe a, a child who's like 18 months old now and is going to have to go through or, or two now and is going to have to go through another year of not really seeing other children you know it could be a it could be a thing it could be a major impact on their development and you know who knows god forbid there are any problems, you know, going to and from hospitals and stuff, and you risk uh, coming to contact with potentially infected people with COVID and so on and so forth. Uh, but if the baby's healthy and we can get into a routine, then, you know, hopefully it won't make that much of a difference because we'll be sort of in our bubble of just, you know, dealing with very, very young baby. You know, um, it's just if there's any anything out of the ordinary, then suddenly all the stuff that would already be very complicated will become even more complicated in the context of a, of a pandemic, you know, so, you know, we'll just have to wait and see, but we're, we're pretty positive, I think. On the other hand, it's going to make it an absolutely cracking story for when she gets older. (laughs) Amy and Alan live in a part of Edinburgh that's interesting for sitting between two different extremes, so to speak. Like I mentioned earlier, they're just down the street from the Royal Palace and other posh areas of the city center. But start walking in the other direction, and Leith was long characterized as the rough-and-tumble part of town during the heyday of the port, when it was crawling with sailors, shipbuilders, and dock workers. It hit its low point in the 80s, when most of those blue-collar jobs went away and a lot of people lived under a cloud of poverty, drug use, and run-down public housing projects. That very period was depicted in the film, and before that the novel, Train Spotting, written by Irvin Welsh, who comes from Leith himself. Now, though, it's a totally different story. All sorts of cool places to eat and drink, lots of ethnic flavors from past eras, and then that sort of Scottish fighting spirit, plenty of pushback on the gentrification as well. It seems, at least to me as an outsider, that it still walks that fine line between what it was and what it's become and maintains a few of its rough edges. I'm kind of envious that they live right there. So we should have lots to work with because I like to end each of these shows by asking my guests to take us on a little trip to their city, their neighborhood, their corner of the world, and tell us about some of their favorite places to go and things to do. You know, we live in a lovely place. We're right, we're pretty central in Edinburgh. We're at the foot of Colton Hill. We're very close to Holyrood Park, which has got amazing hills. I mean, I'm going in there, even in the lockdown, we can go out for exercise. So I'm going in there walking and it's like, you can walk in these beautiful hills, got amazing views right out over the city, you know, just sort of looking almost directly down at the center of the city and, and you can see for miles in every direction. Um, we actually have a, a favorite little French 
place, a French sort of bistro place called Chez Jules. We go there a lot with friends of ours. Yeah, loads of good stuff. There's so many like great cafes in our neighborhood that are just brilliant for brunch. We're absolutely spoiled for choice for brunch places. <laughs> so uh, the Red Kite Cafe is pretty great. I can't, what's the name of that Italian place? Polentoni, is that the Polentoni, yeah, that's, oh my God, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so good. But yeah, Polentoni's is great. Red Kite Cafe is lovely. Century General Store. Yeah. There's a little place called Walnut. Oh, Walnut. My God, yeah. Which is great to eat as well, uh, quite near us. <laughs> it's sad because obviously all of these like brilliant restaurants that we might not be able to go to with our baby, but <laughs> but they are great and other people should definitely go to them. <laughs> Amy, Alan, thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's a great pleasure. It's nice to chat. It was a pleasure. Thanks. I really appreciate Amy and Alan taking the time, especially with all they've got going on, to be my guests. If you'd like to reach us, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's at Same Boat Show. Same Boat is written, produced, and edited by me, Tim Pogo. And you can find me anywhere at Tim Pogo. And if you know a story, maybe it's your own or someone you know of, and you think it ought to be heard on Same Boat, we'd love to hear about it. Hit us up on social media or email us at this address ideas at sameboatshow.com. As we wrap this one up, Amy and Alan, to me, are an example of something I think we all want to do, but must continually nudge ourselves to strive for. And that's just rolling with the punches and letting things simply be. It's not always going to be perfect. Sometimes it'll be far from it. Theirs isn't a story of dramatic twists and turns, but instead one of just dealing with things and facing reality with pragmatism and perseverance in one of the most confusing and unpredictable times in history. And I think that if we ever feel inconvenienced or put out by things beyond our own control, the thing is to not get bent out of shape and instead being flexible, adapting, and recognizing that other things or people might be affected so that it's not always just about us and how we want things to pan out. Let's try to remember that the next time we don't get a job we think we deserve or get cut from a team or otherwise don't get exactly what we expected. I mean, things happen, even when the world is at a standstill. But humankind has shown that one way or another, we'll sort it out. We always do. Amy and Alan are sorting it out, not only because they have to, but also because they understand that they can only do so much about it and are allowing the rest of it to just be as it may. Thanks for listening. I'm Tim Pogo. Talk to you next time.